Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And here we go with the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Miss Jericho, how you doing, man? Don't you find it always strange that I just leave you a voice note? You know, that ever strikes you as, as odd? Uh, anyhow, that's nothing to do with this, this phone call. Uh, I just got back from the, the doctor. And, uh, you know, I always thought those orthopedic shoes were uh, a bunch of hooey, you know? But he suggested I try him, and, uh, you know, now I stand corrected. Thank you very much. Goodbye. All right. I like that one. It makes me laugh just thinking about Duff McKagan uh, wearing orthopedic shoes in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> thanks to Duff for delivering every single Friday without fail. And thanks to everyone who's been hanging out with me on Saturday nights. The Saturday night special has been going strong since the lockdown started. And even though some things are starting to uh, reopen and reclosing in some cases... Seems like it's going to be a while before we can go out and see shows and party with our friends in the bars, etc. So come hang out with me tomorrow night. It's a special time. It's going to be at 10 p.m. Eastern uh, and on Facebook Live and my YouTube channel. 10 p.m. Usually I do it at 9 p.m. 10 p.m. Uh, on Saturday night. Uh, bring your questions. We're going to continue the Q&A. It's A spelled E-H. Sing along requests. Bring your beverages and come have some fun. Uh, we had some uh, connection issues last week because I was at a undisclosed location in the middle of a thunderstorm but i'm back at home with my fine uh, uh scenery behind me it'll be tomorrow night at 10 p.m special time on facebook live on my official youtube channel we'll see you then all right today is part two of ref week and i've got my longtime friend and longtime wwe referee mike Kyoto is with us he spent 35 years with wwe uh, before he was released just a few months ago he'll tell you all about the circumstances uh, surrounding his release and uh sharing a lot of stories about the talent he worked with over 35 years, the huge matches he called, the ribbing he took on road trips, some of the stuff he learned in his early days working for Gorilla Monsoon, talking about Brock Lesnar big show match when the ring collapsed, the six-man tag he wrestled in with uh, me and The Rock against the Dudley's Nick Patrick. Totally forgot about that one. He's got some great memories of China and some of the stuff that would happen in the locker room between the boys. And Mike's even got his first ever T-shirt available at ProWrestlingTees.com. Lots going on with Mike Kyoto, and you hear it all starting now on Talk is Jericho. So one thing that's very rare in professional wrestling is longevity. Uh, if you can get a gig with a company for three years, four years, five years, you're doing well. But when you've been in a company for 31 years, that's got to be some kind of record, I'd have to say, uh, or one of the, the longest tenures in history. And that's the, that's the tenure of Mike Kyoto. Uh, in uh, World Wrestling Entertainment, World Wrestling Federation. And Mike, is there anybody that was there longer than you that you know of? Yeah, I mean, not as far as refereeing. I've, I've been in the business, Chris, 35 years with the company. Wow. But 31 years when I debuted refereeing. Um, back in the day, you just didn't come on, just come on, you know, and just be a referee. You had to pay dues. Right. Ring crew dues. And, you know, like I did ring crew and travel the trucks for um, 20 years. And refereed and stuff. And uh, Chief J. Strom uh, made me a referee way back in the day in the uh, mid-80s. So you're talking 35 years with the WWE. That's insane. That's And, yeah, I actually worked for Gorilla Monsoon when I was 15 and 16, setting up the rings with Joey Morella. And uh, Victor Kionis used to, um, you know, definitely run the ring crew back in them days for Gorilla because Gorilla owned a uh, certain territory mm -hmm. in South Jersey, Philadelphia, Spectrum, and 
Wildwood, New Jersey and everything. And I used to do the ring crew on, on the summer times and on the weekends when I had off, you know, from school. So when, when when you're talking about about that long, I mean, is Tony Chimmel been there that long? Uh, the- Tony Chimmel's been 38 years. Yes, he was at 38 years, and then he was ring crew and ring announcer. And then I became a uh, I was doing ring crew, and then I became the referee. We were kind of the complete set as a ring crew coming from the Northeast in New Jersey, where it was just you, you had a ring announcer, referee, and both guys drove the trucks and set up the rings for many years. Um, longevity, Chris, is a great statement to make because uh, that's what when I grew up in uh, Gorilla Monsoon and Joey Morella and, and his family in, out of New, Willingboro, New Jersey. Gorilla, like I wanted to be a wrestler when, you know, I was like, I came back into wrestling and asked Gorilla and Joey for a job after my father took a stroke uh, when I was 17. Mm-hmm. So I knew wrestling always brought me great money working on the weekends. Um, bought me four cars by the time I was 17. And I mean, in a bunch of stuff, I had the best waterbed in the 1980s, I think. <laughs> back in the day, I mean, I mean, I, I made a lot of money on the road. Uh, Five hundred bucks a night on the road when you're fifteen, sixteen, you know that was that was great money. It's huge, sure. Um, I asked Gorilla back for a job. You know, I wanted to be a wrestler, and he turned around and he seen me taking snap bumps and everything, snap, you know, uh, snap suplexes and all this other stuff in the ring with the boys when we'd set up the ring, and a lot of the guys would get there early. And he goes, "Hey, look." The longevity in this business is refereeing. And that's what I've told Joey, and that's what I'm going to tell you. So if you want to learn how to bump as a referee, I get it. But stop trying to be one of the boys because you're not. Hmm. And I took that advice, Chris, and that was very good advice. And and that's why I think I've lasted this long, you know, because I took in some great advice from some old school talent. Well, let's just talk briefly about, about the events of the last month or so when there was kind of the release it happens every year after WrestleMania, obviously even worse now with the pandemic, was this something that kind of took you by surprise or did you kind of see it coming? Yeah, Chris, it took me by uh, a complete surprise. Um, I had surgery in October 1st mm-hmm. in uh, Alabama and I had torn ro- rotator cuff and uh, torn bicep. So I went through surgery in Alabama, Dr. Dugas and surgery went great I'm healed up great, and I uh, was ready for WrestleMania. actually signed a new contract in the middle of March. Hmm. My contract was up. I actually got a little bump in pay, and then uh, I get a phone call on tax day, April 15th. So, yeah, it took me by complete surprise. Was there a reason given for a guy of, of, of your longevity, like we, just, like we said? No, there was no reason. He, um, I asked if it came from certain people like Vince and Stephanie, and he, and he said no, mm-hmm. it didn't. It's not like they pulled me out of a hat and said, okay, we have to cut the company and uh, Mike Kyoto's salary is the start of, of the thing. You know, it was just, it was, I think, something completely different. I don't know if it's heat or, but how can you have heat if you've been off for six months rehabbing? And, uh, you know, I haven't even been on Twitter and Facebook since 2015. So, it, yeah, it took me by complete surprise, Chris, you know. It's interesting because you see that kind of happening with kind of the, the long. I mean, the, last, the the first thing that pops into my head is Mark Yeaton. Yes. When they did the same thing to him, he's another guy that had been there for years and just out of nowhere, he's gone. Like you said, you're going to cut costs, but this is going to start with Mike Kyoto and Mike, Mark Yeaton's contract. That's going to make a difference, you know? That's correct. I mean, that's, you know, 
you know, I asked him, you know, like I, I actually said, you know, I, I kind of figured he put me on a chopping block out of TR. So, um, and he got it passed somehow. So, um, yeah, I don't know where the heat came from. I mean, I haven't been on the road in six months and, uh, you know, my career is definitely not over. I, I definitely got plenty, plenty left, you know, whether it's inside the ring or outside the ring and training referees and work with talent and so forth. Well, the thing is, too, like you mentioned, one thing you can't uh, teach is experience. You either have it or you don't. And for you, I mean, you, you I, I'm coming up on my 30th year and you are even eclipse that. But let's talk about you mentioned, you know, how you started with Gorilla and and you know, kind of did the ring trucks and all that sort of thing. Let's talk about how the business was back, you know, 35 years ago, carry the three, that's 1985. Right. I mean, that's almost pre WrestleMania. It's just as the expansion started. Tell us what was the company like back then? And how did things work as far as what your job was? I got put on a trial period, you know, like working for um, gorilla monsoon, even before I started full time with the company, I would get 50 bucks for the ring, 50 bucks for taking robes, 50 bucks for playing music, and then 50 bucks for timekeeping. <laughs> Tony Chimmel ring announce. And then uh, before the show, I remember Joey Morell and them guys in like back in the day, Dick Worley and Joey Morell and certain Dick Kroll and guys. You know, of course, they didn't sell. You know, the young guy had to sell the programs. So when Victor said, hey, go sell programs, I was like, well, how much are pro? They're only a dollar a piece, right? He goes, yeah. And I said, how much do I get? He goes, 10 cents off the dollar. I said, oh, man. I said, that's it? <laughs> well, when I went out and sold 3,000 programs, you know, with Andre Giant on the cover at the boardwalk or down to Jersey Shore or Wildwood, I made $300 selling programs and $200. Arnie Skolin go, hey, kid, what'd you do? He'd have the cigar in his mouth and everything in the back and with that briefcase full of money. Okay. I did this, 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 and that, Arnie. He goes, okay, kid, here you go. 500, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, man, I'll sell programs all the time. <laughs> I was like, you know, I just love the, the lack of, of corporate back in those days where you guys were the entire, the entire show ring crew, driving the trucks, setting up the ring, selling concessions, <laughs> whatever needed to be done. That was your job. You know, I remember back in the day, like when I was, it was, I was that young and, and, uh, Andre the Giant sitting back in Wildwood, New Jersey and some town, like, I remember him saying, Hey, could get me vodka, get me some wine. And I'm like, I'm like, Andre, I was like, I'm not even old enough. You know, like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to, you know, I can't get, I can't get it for you. And I remember like, it was Paul Roma and bunch of guys and Steve Lombardi, I think, and a bunch of, you can't say no to Andre. And I'm like, what? And it was like, we're Tony Gurria and everything. They were tag team, I think, back then. And um, Tony Gurria and Rick Martell. And they said, you can't say no to Andre. I said, well, how am I going to get it? They said, how would you get alcohol if you're underage now anyway? I said, I'd sit there, wait at the liquor store, and then ask somebody to give them cash and get me the beer. Or something. He goes, well, that's how you're going to do it now. So I started doing that. And I was like sitting there with Andre's $100 bill, hoping I wasn't going to, you know, get robbed of like, you know, this guy not coming back out with his, it had to be right. French wine. It had to be the, like this French wine. I think, I believe it was like a Stoli vodka he drank. Mm -hmm. It was only certain things that he drank, you know, but when I came through and he tipped me 50 bucks, I'd be like, thanks kid. You know, and I'm like, this raise is dumb. Thanks kid. Playing cards. I'd be like, no problem, Andre. <laughs> yes, boss. <laughs> would he would he give you a tip or anything like that? 
Oh yeah, he, he used to tip me heavy. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. I used to buy beer uh, when I was not even uh, of age yet. But the guy most of the time would just take your money, walk in one door, and walk out the other side. You'd never see him again. <laughs> right, that's what you're so worried about, right? And I got to go back to this guy that's seven foot, five hundred and twenty pounds, and I'm like. Oh, I'm like, I'm going to kill the boys if they're, they, I lose this money because they're telling me to go do this. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about your road schedule back in, back then because that's when it was – I mean, I'm just thinking that you've seen everybody come and go in there from Andre all the way up now to you know Drew McIntyre and everyone in between. So what was the schedule like back in 1985-86 when you started on the road? Yeah, the schedule was uh, tough. Um, that's tough. That's something that you uh, definitely sacrificed home stuff. Like um, Tony Chimel and I, we're on a road for like at least 280, sometimes 300 days a year. That's insane. And that's no exa- exaggeration. That's a shoot, right? No, that's that's a shoot. Yeah. That is a complete shoot. Because I mean, for for the first 11 or 12, I want to say 11, 12 years, like I remember getting a call from Chimel after 12 years. We did thanks on Thanksgiving Day, we did Survivor Series in Richfield, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And we weren't home for like, 12 years on Thanksgiving day. Cause we used to have to leave on like right. Monday or Tuesday to set up in Richfield, drive eight, nine hours there from Jersey. And then, I mean, we were on the road constantly. And then like Europe tours, when we started those, we'd do 17 days in Germany God. alone, you know, and in buses and everything, you know, um, those were some fun trips in Germany and everywhere in England and every, you know, around, the, around the world. So, um, yeah, I mean, we had to set up the ring, get prepared, do everything during the show. And then, and then once I started refereeing and all that, you had to tear down the ring, drive the truck, go to the next town. And there was at times that we had double shots. I don't know if you remember them back in it. Oh yeah. Yeah. We had the double shots where we had one show at one o'clock in Syracuse and then like another show at seven thirty, eight o'clock in Utica, New York. So we'd break down quick, get to the hockey arena and then boom, set back up and do the show again. But it was great because it was double pay. Right. All right. So let's talk about some of the more colorful characters you worked with, Mike, in the 80s when you were just starting in uh, WWF at the time. But before we do, I know a lot of you listening right now spend a lot of time during lockdown cleaning up garages and closets in your homes. And if you discovered a bunch of stuff that you don't use anymore and you don't know what to do with it, you definitely need Mercari, the selling app. Trust me, I know. I got three kids in my house. That means we've got a lot of clothes and shoes, toys. Sporting equipment, old phones, devices taking up valuable space. All the stuff the kids have outgrown or just don't use anymore. We gathered it all up and sold it on Mercari. Mercari is an app that makes selling the stuff you no longer use or need super fast and super easy. That's why it's called the selling app. Uh, So you round up the stuff you want to sell, take a few pictures, add a description, and boom, your item is listed. Mercari will even mail you a shipping label when it sells. Everything ships, so you don't have to deal with awkward meetups with strangers, no face-to-face, no in-person meetings, all safe and socially distanced. The Mercari app has over 600,000 reviews on the App Store with an average 4.8 star rating. And with millions of people using the Mercari app in all 50 states, the stuff really sells. So why not give it a try? Sell or buy almost anything on Mercari. You can find Mercari on the app stores or on Mercari.com. It's M-E-R-C-A-R-I, Mercari, the selling app. Let's talk about some of those of those tours back in the days. I mean, the 80s had some pretty colorful characters. Uh, who were some of the guys that stood out as being uh, kind of the more uh, <laughs> more raucous and, and crazy out of the dudes that were there? Yeah, um, definitely. Like, uh, I remember, like, 
God, I, I used to love to go out at night. Like, and I've had a few nicknames in this in this business in over three decades that I've been with the business, and uh, it started out- Kiki the Optimist. Kiki the Optimist, right? <laughs> and I know, right? And I love you say that. I let you've always said that, Kiki the Optimist. <laughs> and uh, that's true, man. You got to be optimist. I always remember saying, "Oh my God, there's another place to go somewhere," you know. <laughs> like, yeah. So when you used to go back in those days, you had some nicknames. What, what did it start out with? It started off with Coyote, mm-hmm. Razor Ramon, and uh, Hulk Hogan. Uh, they they started me off with Coyote back in the day. So um, and I remember I was like, he was like, Coyote, he was like, I'm nicknaming you Coyote because every time you're just howling at the moon at night after the show, just always chasing that moon. <laughs> <laughs> so that stuck for a while, and then um, I guess when the Rock came around. He started, he goes, Coyote? He goes, no, nah, I don't like that nickname. I like Chi-Chi. I said, Chi-Chi? I said, oh, I, said, I don't kind of like that. He goes, that's too bad. You're stuck with Chi-Chi. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever The Rock said went, you know? Yeah. So, and then Chi-Chi came around. But um, then it came out, uh, like, Kiki. I think uh, a lot of the, uh, the unbelievable female talent in this business, uh, they started that some years ago. So uh, they, they wanted up turn around, and one of the girls were like, Kiki, and it just it just stuck, you know? I remember when, uh, I, I, cause we used to work together quite a bit. You and me and the rock, you were always our referee and it was Chi Chi. And then when I left for a couple years and came back, everyone's saying Kiki. I'm like, no, it's Chi Chi. It's like, Chi Chi, what are you talking about? I'm like Kiki, what are you talking about? Right. So somewhere right. there was a little bit of a change in those few years. That was the truth. That's, that's the truth too. Um, that, that is definitely the truth. Cause some of the guys come back and they go, well, who's Kiki, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's Kiki. Oh, well, when, when's his name become Kiki, you know? <laughs> and uh, even Shane, when Shane came back and we were doing Taker's match and, and AJ, you know, I remember he was coming back and he said, hey, this match is huge for me. And, you know, I want you to be my referee. And I was always kind of Shane's referee too as well. And and, he, and he's, when he came back, they said, oh, well, Kiki will ref your match. And he's Kiki? Who the hell's Kiki? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he comes up to me and goes, who the hell gave you that nickname? I said, I know. I said, you know, people give you nicknames, I guess. You just don't choose them, you know? Right. So. Who were some of the guys that you worked with quite exclusively that kind of wanted you to be their ref all the time? I remember back in the day, it was Brett on house shows and stuff like that and TVs and stuff like that. After Joey was gone, Brett Hart, there was a lot of guys like The Rock wanted me to do matches for his I mean, um, I remember like uh, even Brock Lesnar and certain guys have asked for me at them times in certain matches. And, you know, it was, it was always a good thing when Michael Hayes came to me and said, they want you to be the referee in this match. And so it was it was a, a ton of talent over the years. Well, it's a big deal to have the right riff because you have to trust the guys uh, that you're working with, you know, or, or in this case, in AEW girls, the, the Aubrey Edwards is the one I always request because you have to have a certain chemistry with somebody and know that they're going to be in the right place at the right time or not be at the right in the wrong, in the wrong place. There, there's a real style to it. What's your kind of your theory on how to be a good referee? A theory on it, definitely to know how to feel the crowd. You have to feel the crowd. You have to feel the ring when you're taking a bump in certain spots. You may not have nothing to feed off of, like whether it's a big screen off the monitor or you know, you just, you got to either feel the crowd, what's going on in the ring by yourself, or you got to feel the bump that 
you know where the crowd's going to react to, where you know your spot's coming back up to come out of a bump. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be at the right time. You have to definitely be there because as much as you guys work so hard, Chris, the referee has to be there at certain spots and has to definitely know what's going on with experience. You know, as far as I think a good referee is not seen so much, if you if you quite understand what I'm saying there. it's He's only there when he's supposed to be. You know, mm-hmm. when a referee is seen too much or too noticed, I mean, that's what Gorilla Monsoon and, and Pat Patterson, a lot of people say, when when you don't notice the referee in that match, the referee has done his job. Mm-hmm. So, um, and of course, you, you do need to know how to work with both talent, I think. You know, it's, um, I see referees used to always go up to one guy. I'd say, make sure you get with the heel. Make sure you know how to work around the heel and how he wants you to work around him with his spots and with him getting his heat or anything in the same way with the baby face. Just don't put it to one guy, get everything how you, how they want you to work with them. And you got to put your input to protect yourself as a referee. No, I mean, and that's a great point. And let me ask you this, being in there for decades and decades, what were kind of the rules that were given to you as a referee throughout the years? Cause I know that Vince would change his mind seemingly every six months as to what's legal and what's not legal. Tell us about some of those those restrictions and, and things that happened. Well, the rules, I mean, like when I grew up in this business, when it was like, you know, when I seen Dino Bravo come in and a lot of guys and, and you know, Shawn Michaels and everything and the Rougeau brothers and the British Bulldogs, you know, like a referee, the rules with them inside the ring is that you had to be there. If there was a tag match, and there's a baby face coming in, steaming in to get the, the heel on a spot. And if you didn't cut him off, they would be hot at you. You know, you were, there were certain spots to where, because you would make a baby face look stupid if, the, if he got to the heel, you know, right. um, on certain heat spots and stuff like that. Because, you know, they always say, don't let me get to him, you know, and if you do, you know, right, right, right. so, um, you know, and there's a lot of things with false finishes, keeping close counts. Uh, the rules in the business now definitely have changed, but I, I see rules. They kind of just uh, one day it's this rule and then the next day it's something else. You know, you know, with the rules as far as the five count with these days is very strict. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 10 count is very strict, but then that's played with, you know, on and off. Counting shoulder to shoulder is a very strict rule as far as, you know, pinfalls and everything how do you mean making sure that the shoulders are actually down that's correct yeah all shoulders are down if one shoulder's up you shouldn't count it and there's certain things where referees have definitely got to give cues i mean cues are huge um spot calling i think spot calling is what i learned when i first was in the business started refereeing was spot calling you know back to talent to talent and uh that's something i was always you know very well at doing yes and I, I, I use my referee quite a bit to relay messages, you know, and, and you have to you have to be able to trust the guy because a lot of times you don't have, you know, 20 seconds to, you know, tell him to get up on the ropes and then he's going to stay. You just got to say, hey, tell him to watch or tell him to look over here. Or, right. You know, get his attention or something like that. You know, very quick. Right. Yeah. Like when I grew up and I, I try to tell reps a lot too these days, like when somebody climbs up to the top rope to drop kick him and the other guys selling on the you know i grew up to where it was like the wrestler used to 
use me and say, okay, is he up? And I'd be like, he's up, he's ready, he's ready. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because, you know, he didn't want to look back or look under his arm or, you know, he's selling a big spot where he's trying to get up to his feet. And, and I'm, I'm his cue. I'm, you know, I'm helping him help me too as well. And I'm like, hey, okay, he's up on the ropes, he's ready. You know, and that's something like, you know, I do want to drive by or something just to let them know. So because they never wanted to look back and look under their shoulders or anything like that. So and that's communication between a referee and, and a wrestler is huge in the ring. So you mentioned before, like as far as, you know, counting the shoulders that is down, that sort of thing. Was there ever circumstances and tell us if there was where you had to count to three when it wasn't supposed to be the finish because the guy didn't kick out. Oh yeah, was there ever time? Yeah, tell tell us what happened there. Yeah, there was uh, not too long ago, a couple years ago, with Shinsuke Nakamura and our truth. And um, I remember Ronnie goes, uh, he small packaged him one time, and then he only told me he was going to small package him again. But then he small packaged him the second time or something, and or no, the first time, mm-hmm. and. He was supposed to small package him twice, and then like Shinsuke didn't like really almost kick out or something. And I'm like, I counted three. And Ronnie goes, That wasn't the finish. He goes, I was supposed to small package him again. I said, Why would you small package him twice? <laughs> I was like, you told me once in the back. He goes, Oh, my my bad dog. I'm sorry. <laughs> but he had won the title. So it was it was it was kind of funny there. And yeah, there's 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 quite a few times where um I've had to count three on certain situations where guys just didn't kick out or counted 10 when they were outside the ring. Do you get heat from the guys when that happens? Back in the day, you would get heat, but not these days. You didn't get, you, you know, they may be hot, but if they didn't kick out or they didn't get back in the ring and it counted 10, you know, uh, that's, that's their own fault, you know? Well, and you're going to get heat if you don't count them. That's correct. Yeah. You get heat from the office. Most, Definitely. I mean, you'll get a lot of heat in Gorilla. So, um, I mean, you have to do your job and you have to pretty much straight and forward do your job all the way through with the rules. Well, even though there is no rule book yet. <laughs> We're still waiting for that. Thinking about writing one. <laughs> Let's talk about your interactions with uh, Vince McMahon over the years. But first, we got to say thank you to one of the sponsors making Ref Week possible here on Talk is Jericho. And that's Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home today is so much more than it was yesterday. But at Rocket Mortgage, home is still all about you. During these challenging times we're all experiencing, the top priority at Rocket Mortgage is the health and safety of the communities they serve. And while things are changing quickly every day, one thing that will never change is their team's commitment to giving you the best mortgage experience possible. That's why if you need mortgage support, their team of experts is there to answer questions and offer solutions for you. Uh, They understand that hardships happen and they are here to help. Whether that means working with you to save money on your mortgage or finding a new way to navigate payments. If you have questions, the team at Rocket Mortgage has the answers. They know how important your home is to you because you are important to them. If you need mortgage assistance, the home loan experts at Rocket Mortgage are available to help 24 hours a day, seven days a week from their home to yours. The team at Rocket Mortgage is with you. So visit rocketmortgage.com slash Jericho to learn more. That's rocketmortgage.com slash Jericho. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org. Number 3030. So what kind of interactions did you have with Vince over the years? 
over the years has just been, you know, how you doing, Vince? How are you, sir? And he'd be like, Mike, how's everything going? Everybody good? Your family good? Yes, sir. You know, it was it was always a good relationship on the fly. You know, Vince is a very busy man. Um, you know, uh, there every time years ago we had more conversations than anything. Uh, not so many in the last so many years, but Vince really kind of comes out of the office, goes a gorilla. And then, you know, and it'll be there for some rehearsals or so forth. But um, my 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 relationship with Vince was was awesome over 35 years. Was there ever a time when he gave you specific instructions like, hey, Mike, I need you to do this. Go out there and make sure this happens. Yes. Yes. He said, um, I need you to put these rules into effect. A lot of rules and help this young talent, period. And I don't care. Whatever you do, I will back you up. You know, so he used to always tell me, like, make sure you, you if you have to count him out, I don't give a damn. You do your job in that ring and make them work around you. Mm-hmm. There's times I, I did that. So how was it over the years when because, I mean, for a while you're referee Mike Kyoto, and then there's a time when Vince doesn't want to announce any referees names. So you're just the referee. <laughs> what, what did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, um, that was uh yeah, I didn't get that because I believe it was the they were kind of saying my name too much and the referee's name too much. Mm-hmm. And I remember it wasn't with me, though, but it was with another referee, which he didn't recognize their name. And he was kind of like, who is this? Who's this? Who's, whose name is this? And they said, oh, it's the referee. And he goes, well, God damn it. He was like, I'm done hearing the referee's name. I don't want to hear their names no more. You know? <laughs> So uh, I was like, well, well, thanks to that ref. I was like, well, they were putting his name over too much. And he just, he didn't recognize the referee's name, I believe. That's what I was told. And that's a classic Vince. He sees one name he doesn't recognize and suddenly everybody's name can never be mentioned again. That's it. Done. <laughs> that's until, it. until he goes, why are we mentioning the ref's name? Damn it. Right. Why are we? Re- <laughs> right. Referees, they don't sell tickets. They comp tickets. <laughs> <laughs> So let's go back to, to when you first started in the 80s in that crazy time frame. How was the business changing around then? Because you mentioned you started in 85, 86, and suddenly there's this huge expansion where Vince is taking over all the territories. Yeah, God. I, when we first started, Tony Chimel and I and everything on the ring cruise and stuff, I mean, Chris, we played music at a show, not at TVs, but at all the live events, we played music to a, a dual cassette boombox. Mm-hmm. And we, we'd have the microphone for Tony Chimmel for ring announcer. I'd take, I would have a backup mic and we'd have a hard mic that would just, you put it right up to the boom box. And like, at first I had this one cassette player boom box. And then when I had two cassette. It was like, Oh my God, I moved up in the world. I have a, I, I could play two cassettes right, right after another. Right. So, and I remember the tapes used to get stuck and everything and a cheap chase Strombo or Jack, Jack Lanza, Rene Goulet, they come walking down the aisle and I'm trying to play Hogan's music or something. And the tape, I'd be pulling the tape, the tape out, trying to put it back in. Then the tape would like string out to like 20 inches long because it's stuck somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and Hogan would have to come out with no music. Oh yeah. The, um, the change has been huge. I mean, from where, what we started doing on live events and even on TVs were, is where we're at now is just, it's a huge, huge, huge difference. It's, it's unbelievable. 
sometimes uh, you see like either fights break out in the ring between the guys or there's fan. Did, did you ever have to get caught in the middle of any of those in the ring or in the dressing room? Yeah, I've been caught through a, a lot of those. Um, they called what receipts and he potatoed the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, no. And, out of you? No, I mean, when the boys, when like one guy, you know, one of the boys would potato somebody else. And uh, I mean, it, there was one thing with, you know, remember the Rougeaus mm-hmm. and the British Bulldog and Dynamite Kid. And I was in this, we were in this elementary school down in the locker room. And I just got done refereeing the match. And um, they were hot at each other. And then next thing you know, like, Dynamite just smacked, you know, Jacques Rougeau, you know. Mm-hmm. And then it started a big fight there. And it was just a kind of, it wasn't even really a fight. It was just he kind of smacked him and he knocked him out, cold out, Jacques Rougeau. And um, I was like, oh, my God. Because I, I liked both them guys. I mean, Raymond and Jacques were great guys. And, you know, Bulldog and and Dynamite Kid, you know. Mm-hmm. That was one of the most... Uh, you know, the big fights that I've, I've witnessed, you know. Well, that's the famous one, too, where the Rougeau's got the receipt on Dynamite, but they knocked they knocked his teeth out with a roll of quarters and all that whole thing? That's sure. That's right. It followed up. Yep, it sure did. Um, they did get the receipt on that. Isn't it amazing how the business has changed? Like, you would never have guys stalking each other in the restroom now to, to knock each other out with a roll of quarters, you know, breaking teeth and breaking noses. Like, it really was so much more Wild West back then. Oof, wild, wild west. You had to watch yourself all the time. You had to watch getting your head shaved on the road, on the overseas tours. You had to, when you fall asleep, your eyebrows. You had to watch everything, you know? Um, yeah, I remember there's so many ribs back in the day. You used to have to watch your gear when you went in the ring. And I remember, like, you'd see people's, like, shoelaces cut and one pant leg cut off and <laughs> cut back. <laughs> Boys would be hot. I mean, there were so many ribs going on back in the day, but I loved it. I survived it. So tell us who who were some of the worst rivers and some of the things they would do. Oh, my God. Uh, Owen Hart. Uh, He would, when I used to play the music on the crew and everything, you know, like the match would be going on. I'd walk away from the headset. And like, this is when we stepped up a notch because we were starting to play music from the headset backstage of like by the ramp side where the, you know the wrestlers would go in and out right so this is when we stepped up from a boom box with the microphone and uh the headset needed back and if i had to go to the bathroom for like three minutes and i knew i had 10 15 more minutes in this match i'd be in the bathroom and i hear the music going i'd be like what the what the hell is that so next thing i run back over to the you know the uh, headsets in the back and, you know, here comes Jack Lonzo. Hey, what the F is going on there, Kyoto? Why are you playing the music? I'm like, I didn't touch the music. You know, I'd get on the headset. Hey, why are you playing the music during the match? He goes, you just got on here and told me to hit the music. I said, what? <laughs> I didn't do that shit. You know, like, I'm like, I didn't say anything. I wasn't even on the headset. He was like, you just got on two minutes ago and said, hit the music. So I'm look over. Who's down? Who's down the hallway? Owen oh, with a, a grin. But back in those days, Chris, if you didn't see anybody pull the rib, you couldn't, you couldn't accuse him for. Those guys were masters at that, right? Yeah, they were masters. I mean, they'd send pizzas to your room on the overseas tour, like ten pizzas, or all these meals, and like you'd have to pay for it. And you'd be like, I didn't order this. What you, what's wrong with you? You know, like <laughs> I'm not paying for this. And you'd have like ten spaghetti bowls in your room at your room. You know, like. 
what the hell, you know? Uh, I remember there was this one time with uh, Davy Boy. I was sitting there and, you know, he'd go up and down that tour bus, up and down. And he used to wear a baseball cap, sunglasses. And I'd be like, and you're all hungover from going out till five, six in the morning, you know? Mm-hmm. And you're on this six, seven hour bus ride. And he turns, you know, like, I remember him just like up and down, grinning, grinning, you know? And I'm like, God, I got to always watch out for him. So then uh, I fell asleep for a while. Then all of a sudden, I'm in, we get to the town, Bret Hart sitting there next to me. He's in, I'm washing my face and everything. And I look up and Brett's next to me. He's washing his face. He's doing something in the, you know, at the sink. And I look in the mirror and I go, holy shit, what happened to my eyebrow? I'm like, <laughs> so my one eyebrow is like almost completely gone. And I'm like, damn it. I'm like, I kept watching Davey the whole time. I only fell asleep for a little bit, you know, but I didn't, I didn't see him do it, but I kind of knew it was him, you know? <laughs> So uh, I like Brett's like, I'm like, Brett, man, what am I going to do with this? He's like, all right, let me see. He goes, and he was like an artist. Brett did a lot of art drawing and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So he's like, let me see if this works. So we try to color it back in. He goes, <laughs> no, nah, that's not going to work, Coyote. I was like, oh, Brett, what are you? I was like, yeah, that looks stupid. He, I was like, what do I do now? He's like, you got to shave the other one. I'm like, <laughs> what? And he's like, you got to shave the other one. He's like, let me help you out. So he gets the razor. He shaves the other one, and then like then like like Davy Boy walks by and he goes, he starts laughing, and I'm like, oh, real funny, huh, Davy Boy? He's like, what happened to the other one? And I said, I don't know what happened to the first one, Davy. And he's like, I don't know, you know. He's like, what are you saying? I did it? I said, no, no, I'm not saying that, Davy. I was just, you know, wondering. He goes, Jesus. He goes, you ribbed yourself. Now I said, oh, whatever. <laughs> Walked around with no eyebrows for a while. The Calgary guys were, were brutal, and so was Kurt Henning. This terrible rivers. Yes, Kurt. Uh, he was another river. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was. God, it was. I think it was with Kurt and Brock Lesnar in a fight in a plane too back in the day. Were you on that plane? You remember that one? The the, the plane ride from death. Yes. 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 <laughs> That's the one where. <laughs> Brock and Kurt got in a fight right next to the exit door. I and mean, this is like 20,000 feet up. And yep. uh, I think uh, Waltman cut off uh, P.S.'s PS, ponytail. Yes, he cut his ponytail off. I remember that. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that was, that was some days. And, you know, we had the – it was a charter flight then, too. I think it was a charter flight. Was it or was it – no, it was business class. No, it was charter because they used to – remember they used to have us go do those pay-per-views – where we'd go to England for a day and we, you know, we'd land in England at like, you know, noon, sleep until like six, do the show, get back on the plane and come right home again. Like what are you just asking for trouble when you do that? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Pushing the boys to the extent. But um, yeah, those days were fun though. I got to say they were, they were, they were a lot of fun, Chris. Well, and those guys were like ninjas too. They could walk by and just do a quick slip and suddenly you lost a, a razor. It wasn't like, no, it was just for people listening. It wasn't like there there was a big long production with you know shaving cream or whatever. They would just come with the razor down to zero and just go, and you wouldn't even know it. That's you wouldn't even know it. You wouldn't even know it. <laughs> I remember the boys. We were on a commercial flight one day, and it was uh, it was Bulldog and a couple of the other boys. But they um, there was a bunch of drunk college kids on the plane, 
and they were talking like, oh, wrestling's so fake and wrestling's this. And they were, these kids were drunk, all college kids coming from some spring break or something. Well, as they were getting off the plane, they all, they, one had half a head. I remember like four of the guys had no hair left and it was just blotchied. All their ha- heads were shaved. And I, I looked at them, I went, holy shit, who did this? I'm like, and these kids were crying coming off the plane. Then <laughs> one of them was even a girl. She had half her head shaved and she was, yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. How were you doing this? With nobody seeing. Oh, I'll tell you, if there was somebody seeing, nobody would say nothing, you know? Right. Because you didn't stooge anybody back in them days, you know? And that's one thing Gorilla Monsoon always said. He was like, let me tell you one thing. Anybody ever wants you to stooge in this business, then you're not doing your job right. You need to go find another job. Because if you need to stooge on the boys or anybody, then you're just not doing your job good enough. Yeah. You know? There's a real code of honor amongst, you know, amongst all of us gypsies, tramps, and thieves, right? Yes, sir. You got it, Chris. That is the truth, brother. So were you ever in the ring when a fan uh, hit the ring? Uh, I'm sure you got stories about that. But before we hear them, I know you probably got stories about this guy too, Diamond Dallas Page. And man, uh, look what he went on to do after his time in the ring. He's grown DDPY into a monster fitness program worldwide. Everybody I know does DDPY and you should as well. I know a lot of the gyms are still closed because of the pandemic or you have to wear masks inside the gym, not comfortable being in there. Uh, and that's what uh, what else makes DDP such a great program is you can do it anywhere, anytime, literally uh, any place. I've done it backstage uh, at AEW, backstage at Fozzie gigs, hotel rooms, dressing rooms, living rooms, my own front yard. It's a killer workout that you can do at your own pace uh, anytime. And Diamond Dallas Page is so sure you'll love his DDPY program He's given you a chance to try it for free for seven days. Just download the DDPY app and get started for free. Once again, you'll get access to hundreds of workouts, live workouts from the DDPY Performance Center in Smyrna, Georgia, and you'll get some personal motivation from DDP himself. You can connect a Bluetooth heart monitor to keep track of the workout data. You can stream the app to your TV so you can do the workouts on your big screen. You can do them on your phone. You can do them on your laptop. Whatever you want to do. It's a kick-ass cardio workout through and through, but it's easy on your joints. So go download the DDPY app today. You can get it for iOS or Android. I've got it on my phone, on my laptop. Start your seven-day trial for free. Choose a workout and get going. Let Dallas and DDPY change your life like he has for thousands and thousands of people, thousands of his clients, thousands of his friends. Get on the path to healthy living and stay there. Get in the best physical and mental shape of your life and do it now during the pandemic. You don't have to leave your house. It's the perfect workout to do at home. Start today for free at ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. Speaking of the code of honor, did you ever, were you ever in the ring when a fan hit the ring? Yeah, yeah. Quite a few times. The one the most memorable one was uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Triple H. And I remember uh, we were all bumped. We all took a bump at that time. I took a bump. I was laid out. And then, you know, it's at certain points as a referee, you have to make sure your head's turned the other way, the opposite, where the spot's going to go down. Mm-hmm. So now all three of us are down, and I hear something in the ring. Like, and I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? Because I feel the ring like moving and bouncing a little bit and somebody stomping. And I'm like, who the hell came out of a dead cell and started, you know, getting on the other guy? It was supposed to be laid out for a while, you know? Right. And I look over 
And there's this fan in the ring, like all of a sudden, like stomping on Stone Cold. You know, like, and boom, we, we all came out of this dead cell. <laughs> yeah, no. And I remember Hunter grabs him. I'm trying to kick the guy and I'm trying to kick him and everything and punch him away, like trying not to hit Triple H. And uh, I remember it was in Germany. We were in Germany somewhere. And, uh, and I remember when uh, they brought him back to the back and security had him. And, he, and all he was trying to do is protect China because China was on the outside. And I remember him going, China, I love you. I just tried to protect you. And then China just walked right up and kicked him straight in the nuts. And she goes, I could protect myself, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and he just drops to his knees. He's like, oh. And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> Yeah, it was never a smart idea for those uh, dudes walking in the ring. You know what I mean? It's it's like it's it's a no win situation. That's true. That's true. Because you'll always see the guys like it don't matter heel, babyface, ref. One time I had the doc involved. Like whoever's just around ringside, it's just like open season. Like fresh meat, kill them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's it. But these days, I think it's a little bit different. Because God forbid, if you did something, they'd probably countersuit you or do something. You know. But back in the days, it was if you got in that ring, it was like, that's your ass, you know? Well, you'd even have the guy brought backstage for a little meeting sometimes. That's right. That's right. You bring him back and yep, teach him really how to be a man. You know, I remember uh, Haku was like the uh, head shrinkers or what, let's see, it was Haku and Tonga. The Islanders. Yeah, Islanders back in the day. And I, we were in like... Um, we were Java Mosque and Altoona, PA, I want to say. Oh it was like gosh, PA. the mosque. Yeah, the mosque. <laughs> the weirdest place for a match. Yes, yes. And um, so I remember uh, Tonga was pretty, like, he was, he was a pretty wild Samoa. He was a great guy, though, great guy. And um, he took somebody back. He made, he made us get somebody backstage because this guy jumped in the ring. And then uh, he actually, like, slapped him on the back. So at the end of the match, they said, tell that guy we want to see him. So he wanted up taking him down with some throat thing and took him right down to, his, to the ground and just put his knee on his head and says, you want me to teach you how to be a man? You want to hit somebody? Hit me now, you know? And I was like, woof, man, don't mess with the boys. <laughs> I'll tell you that. We got in a, hell, you were probably even there in one of those trips to Japan. Remember that one trip we talked about charter planes where they charter the entire crew to japan yes and i mean we had like a raw taping and a smackdown taping one after another it's like oh my gosh that was just so insane that trip um I, yeah i remember that's when that's when the, the with that old security guard jimmy what's his name passed out and jimmy tillis or jimmy tillis oh you remember <laughs> he got his head stuck in the in the bus one time. I remember. That's right. That's what I'm talking about. Remember? Oh, it is okay. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Shane was on that bus. I remember he, he was so drunk and something happened. He got his head stuck in some like metal piece or something. Some like cart. Like he was a. I think it was a holder for luggage or something. I know it was. I know buses in Japan. And he got his head stuck and we couldn't get him out for the longest time. I remember when he finally woke up, I'm like, I said, Mike Kyoto's the new head of security for the WWE. Because <laughs> you are the one who able to get him out. 
Kiki the optimistic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, I was just going to say we're at one of those things in Japan where there's some kind of a bar fight. And this is when Haku came back in about 2002, kind of for his last run. And it was one of those ones where I knew how crazy he was and all of us did. But he was a mild mannered, you know, family man then. But all it took was one one little indication that one of the boys is in trouble. And he was over there goozling all the Marines and taking them all down and calming the situation, you know, that old school uh, uh, code of honor that we talked about. Yes. And um, I remember that when he, he took them all down, he told me, I believe it was Tori Wilson and I want to say Stacy Keebler that was with us. Yeah. And then he made me, you take the girls and you get the girls outside the club right. and do it now. And I was like, yeah, but I want to help you because I want you to take care of the girls and get them outside safe now. And I said, okay, brother, you got it. And the next thing you know, all this shit, I missed everything, you know, but <laughs> I started seeing them go to town on somebody, but I was like, Keebs, Toy, we got to go right now, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I definitely did my part, you know, what he told me to do, but I kind of missed everything, you know, and we got to go. <laughs> Let's talk about, um, you know, once again, being in the ring for pretty much the entire modern generation of the WWE, who were some of the most popular guys that you were ever in the ring with. And I know you're going to understand what I mean because you can watch it at home on TV as a fan or in the arena, but when you're standing in the ring, there's a whole different sound that you, that you have, that you hear and that you experience. Who are some of the biggest names that you were in the ring with? Um, you mean modern or all? I mean, I mean, from, from 85 to now, the most popular, you know, it's, it's like when they came out, the place would go crazy. Yeah. Like, um, I would have to say, like, uh, when I first started with Hulk Hogan was the most impressive. Right. Um, Andre, when he even came out to the ring back in the day when I was a kid, it was just a different kind of pop. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was kind of like, whoa, like, holy crap, you know, like, and they used to rise. But it was just, uh, I'd have to say Hulk Hogan is one guy that I've, I've seen these have kids crying through the barricades, the old bicycle racks crying and when he's selling and selling and selling it was just amazing to see these people going nuts and like when he entered the entrance when his music used to hit the crowd used to go just nuts yeah and i have to say that um bret hart had a huge impact on his entrance on me when i'd be in the ring that's cool there was yeah there was so many guys i mean i i there were so many guys back in the day and then um of course the Rock, of course, yourself too, Chris. Hmm. Thanks, man. I mean, really, you know, uh, your entrance music and you, you're larger than life. Some, like some other guys. And CM Punk was one of, he had this, like, you know, he had this charisma where he came out, even with his music, mm -hmm. was just larger than life, you know? And um, there's been many guys. I mean, of course, like The Rock, Hogan, back in the day, um, I'd have to say Triple H, even, you know, just there's so so many talent that's on and off. It's funny, we keep mentioning the, the connection with The Rock and yourself and myself. <laughs> Remember that tour that we did? It was one of my favorite tours ever uh, when we went to Japan and Singapore and Malaysia. Yes. And it was right after I won the, the title. So they put me and Rock on top. It's right before Rock basically left because he was promoting the Scorpion King and he wanted to be over in the Orient for that. Remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Oh, and yeah. I had some kind of, <laughs> some kind of issue with Earl Hebner. Cause I think I had yelled at his son, Brian for 
something up. And so Earl was mad at me. He's like, I'm not refereeing their matches. And you're like, and we're like, all right, let's get, let's get Chi Chi in there. Yeah. I remember that. You don't want to ref, ref the main event. Well, then we'll get Mike in there. And we had the best, the best time. Yeah. My, one of my most favorable, like I wasn't wrestling really, but took a couple bumps to had a couple spots was with the six man tag with you, the rock and the Dudley boys and Patrick, you know, now here's something funny, you know, um, that's something, you know, you've been doing this for a long time and you completely forget. And I had just seen somebody mention that or something like that just recently. So I went back and checked it out. I totally forgot about that. So tell us about, about what you remember about that match. Shoot, I haven't forgot about that day, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> was that your only match you ever had? That was my only match I ever had in the ring. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about it. What happened? Tell us the story. Yeah, man. I mean, hey, uh. I was, uh, when, when they told me that day I was going to be in a six-man tag, I said, who, me? I said, doing what? They were like, wrestling. You're going to be in a six-man tag? Then I with Chris Y2J, Chris Jericho, and The Rock <laughs> against the Dudleys and Nick Patrick. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, my, okay, great, man. I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, I better get my game on. I'm like, I better, you know, not mess nothing up here. I got a few spots. And I remember Bubba coming up to me, and I had to take a clothesline, right? Yeah. Bubba. I did a few spots and everything with Nick Patrick in the ring. And I turned around. I know I had to take a clothesline from Bubba. <laughs> and he goes, I remember him coming up to me. He goes, Kyoto, if you don't fucking sell this bump, <laughs> he goes, you're a referee. You're not one of the boys. He goes, you better sell the shit out of this bump. And I'm like, no problem, Bubba. No problem, Bubba. I got you. I'm selling. I'm selling. Well, Chris, when he gave me that clothesline, there was no selling, period, because he <laughs> stiffed the shit out of me so bad. <laughs> If you ever watched that, I held my shoulder all the way till I got back to the back. <laughs> I remember you had to wear your, uh, your you had to wear your ref your ref clothes, right? I had to wear the ref shirt and everything, you know. And uh, even through the spot when I gave the people's elbow and everything and all that, I I was still holding the sh shoulder. And he comes and then I come to the back in the locker room and he goes, he goes, you oversold a little bit. But overselling is better than underselling. But it was good. Thank you, Kyoto. <laughs> I think that's when we were doing the um, invasion versus the WWE or whatever it may be. So Nick Patrick was kind of the uh, the anti WWE ref, and you, of course, were Mister Mister WWE ref. So that's that's why you're in the match. It's funny because the other ref was another guy who's been there for a long time, uh, Timmy White. Yeah, Tim White was the referee exactly. And I uh, love Tim White, man. He actually called me a couple months ago so to see how I was doing all that. So, Because I was out, out for surgery for a while. So he was like, man, I, I feel your pain, what you're going through, you know. And he was just checking on me because he had rotator cuff problems years ago. Well, let's talk about that, too. Like, you know, they talk about being a referee. And you sometimes you do you are called to take bumps or to have matches or, or you know. But just the point of counting to three with that shoulder like Timmy's shoulder went out that kind of ended his career. And you tell me, you just had rotator cuff. It's, it's more physical than people might expect to be, to be an official in the, in, in, in pro wrestling. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it, it lasted a long time. What happened was I took a bump. It was probably about seven, eight months ago. I got pulled out of the ring and, uh, it was a spot where one of the outside, um, like the managers or, you know, the enforcer on the outside and he pulled me out of the ring and I kind of, instead of taking a belly bump or anything on the mat, I kind of landed on my shoulder a little bit twisted, you know, which is, you know, you never know which way you're going to land when you take a bump. 
So I tore my rotator cuff at that point, but then I continued the referee for a while and they thought it was a deep bruise. And so then I did some gauntlet matches like one week for an hour. Then the next week I did another gauntlet match for an hour. And then, then it was, it was still good to, it was still good to go, but I felt it. I, after the gauntlet, the second gauntlet match I did, I cooled down for about an hour or so. And then I had to wait for at like 2.05 to get done. And then I did this dark match at like 11 o'clock at night. And after cooling down and everything, and then boom, I think I tore my bicep right there. Hmm. So at that point, that's where I went on to get surgery for uh, rotator cuff and bicep. So, but it's all good to go now. I'm back. I feel great. Well, like you said, I mean, th- there's some wear and tear there, but you know, it's actually funny. Uh, I had the match playing in the background. I just saw that clothesline. Yeah, that wasn't a clothesline. That was basically a, a punch to the face from Bubba Dudley to you. Oh, yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Because, I mean, I felt that. I felt that, really. I was like, there was nothing to really sell. I was I was, uh, I was, was definitely potatoed. <laughs> so let me, as we start to wind down here, let me ask you about, um, you know, what is the, the differentiation, the differentiation between being one of the boys and being in the office because we had so many great times together. You, you know, I'm going to ask you who you travel with, who some of your favorite guys to travel with were, but were you ever considered to be part of the office or referees part of the boys? Well, I wanted to be referee part of the boys, you know? Yeah. I was, I was never an office guy, Chris. I, I lived and I lived my life with amazing different guys and talents and, and the boys throughout the 35 years I was doing this. All the boys were my family, you know? Right. I spent all the time on the road with the boys. And my no, my job was to be on the road with the boys, you know? And it's just, uh, I just never felt like I was an office guy, mm-hmm. you know? I actually wanted, you know, definitely at some point later on down the road to train referees. And, you know, like I said, I still I still have a lot left in me inside the ring and outside where I could provide my knowledge and, and my experience and stuff, what I've learned over the course of years. Who were some of your favorite guys that you traveled with? Uh, there's a bunch, you know, like um, back in the day with Joey Morella, I used to travel with him a lot. And Tony Chimmel, um, when I first started. After that, when I became just a referee, you know, I would, I would travel. I, I had great times with Test. I used to travel with Test a lot. Mm. And um, he was a lot of fun to travel with over the years. Our um, truth traveled with R-Truth a lot. Uh, Jack Swagger, travel with him. Ray Ray, Ray Ray Mysterio, all, all the time. Umanga was a very good close friend. Loved to travel with. It would be uh, me, Ray Umanga, Johnny Stamboli. Remember him? Skidoochi, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Skidoochi, and uh, yeah, and um, there was a lot of guys. Epico and Primo, great guys. Love those guys. Yeah, I love them. <laughs> And uh, yeah, they're shit, dis- they're shit disturbers too. You got to watch them. Remember that time we were in Dubai together, and the guy threatened uh, he put a he put a, a, a bounty on my head to. Yeah, remember that guy? <laughs> he had his he had his shirt down like a Guido with chains and everything, and he's pulling. He had that Hummer outside, and he's going, "I'll get you, I'll get you, and you, I got a bounty on your head." He was telling you that. I said, and then we're sitting there going. Oh shit! Are we gonna be all right when we go back to the hotel, or is this guy gonna? <laughs> you know. He said uh, because he was being kind of a jerk, so I said, "Watch this!" And I walked by and gave him the old hip check into the wall, like, "Oh, sorry, buddy." Yes, yes. And he said he was, he was put a bounty on my head. 
for $7 million. You, you, you'll be dead in 25 hours, $7 million. And I remember I, was, I said to, to Swagger, is that, like, is that good? Like, is, this, is that a lot of money for a bounty or is it? <laughs> do we need, like, is, is like, if I was like Mel Gibson or, you know, like Brad Pitt, would it be 30 million? Like, how much is 7 million? <laughs> yeah, right. So then the next day we, we go to work and we're doing some stuff, whatever we're doing there. And I think I had some meet and greets or something. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to play it safe. I got 24 hours to live. It's been about 20. I'm not going to go out tonight. And then do you remember you sent me a picture to my phone? Do you remember what the picture was? No, I do not. A giant bottle of Grey Goose. Oh, that. Yes. Okay. Yes. I remember they were selling those big bottle. Um, they were selling those big bottles with sparklers. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, hey, look what we got. And I was like, all right, I got to go. So I go I go to the club and I see the bouncer and he goes, oh, you're still alive. And I said, like, am I okay? He says, no, that guy talks shit every weekend. He puts a bounty on somebody's head. He says he works down the street at the liquor store or whatever. Yeah, that was, that was, a, that was a nice club. Oh, that was off some boat marina. Remember that? Right off some boat and all the shots, you know. What were some of your favorite cities to go to? Because you mentioned you always like to go out, and so did I. And we always had kind of a crew that would like to go and do, see things. Yeah, like um, Japan was one of my favorite. Mm -hmm. uh, Rapungi was the best to go to. I thought, you know, that was real fun. I mean, if you didn't go to, you had when you went to Japan, you had to go to Rapungi, right? Yeah, I mean, it was something you had to do. And um, even Shinjuku and a lot of places in Japan. Australia is one of my favorites. Sydney and Melbourne. It was just uh, we used to get back to the hotel at like noon, and the club would still be going on. I mean, we'd go at it like. Midnight, you know, of course, by the time we got back, we didn't get out to like 12 or one o'clock in the morning. And then we'd go to these clubs in Australia. And like, I remember dancing with some girl and I'm sitting there and it's like, boom, 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 boom. The music's still going. And all of a sudden, one of the boys like, hey, we got to go. Kyoto, we got to go. I'm like, what time is it, love? She's like, it's 11 o'clock in the morning, love. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I remember the first when I walked out, it was like 1130 and the cars were all and brights. It was sunny. So I'm like, okay, I get it. So now when I go out in Australia, I got to bring a pair of sunglasses with me. <laughs> Not when I go in, it's when I come out. <laughs> you know? A couple of names that you mentioned that just uh, talk about briefly, because their, their, their careers were, were, were cut short. Talking about Test and Joey Morella. Uh, a lot of people don't remember those guys. Let's talk a little bit about, first, let's talk a little about Joey Morella. Definitely. Joey Morella, man. I, I grew up with him. He loved everything I did. I mean, we had such a great relationship. Um, it was just, uh, he loved the fish. He played baseball. I played baseball. He loved hockey. I loved hockey. We loved football. We loved all sports. We used to travel together. We were growing up having so much fun. We used to hang out at home. And as soon as we came home off the road, we'd get together after we pay bills for one day and get some stuff together. And we'd start hanging out at home for a couple of days that we had at home. And um, we both played baseball and just had a lot of things in common, me and Joey, on the road. There was a lot of good stories with Joey, too, man. A lot of funny stories. So. Such a drag because it's, it's, it's the one thing that, that we all kind of dread, you know, whatever it was, falling asleep at the wheel or whatever, and, and having a car crash. And that's what happened with Joey, just on the road doing his job, right? That's correct. Yeah, Chris, it was just sad. God bless Joey, man, and miss him very much. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, we were coming off a 17-day road trip. Jeez. And I remember he had, a, we were coming back from Salisbury, Maryland, and we had to, um, he had to drive all, we were driving the ring crew truck back, Tony, Chimel and I, and back to South Jersey. And we were just finishing off a 17 day run. 
And he had to drive back to Newark, New Jersey, which was probably, he passed so many different airports at that time, BWI, Washington, I think, BWI, Philadelphia, and then was continuing on. He actually got an accident with uh, Bruno Harvey Wimple back then. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he actually had the accident right by his, his mother's exit, oh. at where she lived near her mother's exit. And Tony Chimmel and I passed that accident at 3 o'clock, 3.30 in the morning. And we didn't even know it was Joey. Wow. Um, there was the police cars there. And, and I remember Chimmel going, kill to look at this accident, you know? And I'm like, holy crap. And it was fire trucks and everything. There were a ton of police cars and ambulance. And um, we couldn't see anything that was going on. And then uh, we were just like, wow, we drove slow past it. And then we were home in another 10 minutes or so. And then we get a guy get a call at like six thirty in the morning from Gorilla Monsoon telling me what happened. It just it was crazy. Oh my gosh. And I had taken a shower like after the matches, Joey, we were in the locker room, we showered, got ready, and I was like, Joey, what are you doing? And he's like, Well, he had just moved to Tampa, Florida. And he's like, I gotta get home and I gotta pay bills and I gotta do this stuff. I haven't been home in seventeen days. I'm like, Why don't you like stay stay with your mom, stay with us. We're gonna go down to Jersey Shore and hang out for the july 4th weekend you know it was right around july 4th and uh i'll never forget that day it was just it's sad yeah yeah good good guy I remember this back in the day when you used to have to wear the the blue shirts and the bow ties as referees yes yes i mean you know joey taught me a lot coming into this business he told me what what to do what not to do and you know because he knew these he knew the old school talent better than i did coming in i was green mm-hmm. he was to me you know he's the one who did hulk hogan and Andre the Giant match. He did, uh, right. I remember 1992 when I seen him do that match in Wembley Stadium in London. And it was the British Bulldog against Brett uh, the Hitman Hart. And that, that match was like 45 minutes. And that crowd was unbelievable. It was just the horns and there was 82,000 people there. I had worked that, that night with a tag match, but what really captivated me with that night was watching that match between Brett and Davey and Joey was a referee in that, in that. So, and that crowd was just going crazy. I mean, it was like the horns were going and it was like, it was one of the classics of all time. Yeah, it was, it was. And that's what really wanted me. I was like, man, when Joey used to count the false finishes, I was like, that's what I, you know, yeah. I get these crowds on their feet like that one day. But Joey taught me a lot, man. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I wish Joey would be in the Hall of Fame someday. But I don't know if a referee will ever make it to the Hall of Fame, you know. So we'll see. Well, you would think it's one of those things, once again, such an important part of, 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 a, of a great match is having a great referee. It's so important. Yeah, and that's what, you know, and, and I appreciate, like, you see, of course, coming from you old school, Chris, you know, I'd love <laughs> to hear that. You know, you always wanted to think you were important because, you know, there's three people in there that's got to tango together or whether it's a tag match with five people. And uh, I, I think a referee is definitely one of the most important things. And I, I think it's almost got away from that in in the business now, in the industry a little bit with certain, you know, mm-hmm. it's always uh, so spotty or so this. But, I, you know, referees should be still one of the most important people in the ring to that match, in that match, whether it's giving cues or calling spots back and forth and, and just being there at the right time, you know, and doing what you're supposed to do. You know, you definitely don't go into business for yourself when you're a referee. That's for sure. You know, 
Sure. That's yeah. I mean, I guess this might not be the easiest question to answer, but is do you like this style of wrestling better where guys are calling more of it in the back and not feeling it? Did you feel uh, back in those days when everything was basically called in the ring was more effective? Are they both effective? Is that just the evolution of, of, of the wrestling business? How do you feel about the style today compared to when you first broke in? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, I definitely like the old school way because to me it's, it, it's at times like it always feels like somebody has to go from A to Z. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes when you're running out of time, it seems like a lot of the talent doesn't say if you had to go from A to F. They wouldn't cut out B and C and get right to the other point because they didn't know how to do that sometimes, you know? Right. So it was just like to where it's like, but if you called spots in the ring and you felt the crowd and you felt you're feeding off the people, you know, I I thought it was more efficient, more successful back in the day with that, you know? And if the crowd like would shit on something, these guys today would go, okay, I still have to go to A, B, C, D, and E, and F, you know? Right. Or if we're running off the time at the air and we're like, I'm like, go home. I told you to go to hell home, you know? It would still seem like they would have to get their spots in. But, I mean, the talent these days is amazing, too. It's amazing and in different ways, you know? Like, when I grew up with, with guys like you, Chris, and, and other talent from when I first started in this business – Nobody had to get trained to anything, I thought. It was like, these guys just had, you guys just had talent. You had charisma. You know how to sell, sell yourself. You know how to sell, period, in the ring. You know how to work a crowd. Everybody took pride in their characters, their gimmicks, their, um, you know, their, their outfits and their jackets. I mean, certain guys with jackets would be like, you know, like yourself. How many times do you, you always have a different part of gear on, you know, and just like guys would have like all this cool gear and I'd be like, damn, check this out. How much this jacket cost? Oh, 5,000. I'm like, what? 5,000. I'm like, <laughs> but they took pride in their, in their gear and stuff like that. You know, like more flamboyant back in the day, I thought. Well, I mean, and that's the thing. It, it, it was much more of a, much more of an emphasis on the show part of it than it is now. But once again, there's an evolution. It happens in hockey and it happens in, you know, comedy or or whatever it may be. So uh, last two questions for you. What kind of is your plan now? I mean, it's interesting because as we mentioned, you you know, there's, there's, there's a layoff and there's a change, but we're in the middle of a world where you can't show up on a Saturday night at ring of honor to, or, you know, or impact or whatever to, to, to do anything because there's, there's no shows right now because of the pandemic. But what do you have in mind as kind of your plan now that you have a whole new, uh, whole new world in front of you? Yeah. I mean, you know, like, like one door closes, Chris, the old saying, another one opens. So, you know, I'm ready to, to move on and stuff. And, uh, I got a lot more left in me, whether it's inside the ring too and outside the ring. And, uh, I'm going to move forward and hopefully these unbelievable times I know, God bless for everybody going through this crisis and people have lost lives and everything. And, you know, and once we get through all this, I'm, I'm hoping to get back into the ring at some point and entertain the crowd again. So, uh, whether it's go international or do local stuff or, you know, and test the fields, I'm here, you know, which is, is, is great. Cause like I said, there's so much experience that you have that you can bring to the table for sure. So yeah, I actually came out with my first t-shirt ever <laughs> yeah, so coming out. I'm like, you know, pro tees.com. So pro wrestling tees.com, right? Yes. Pro wrestling tees.com. So I got some shirts coming. Last question for you, man. What is, uh, if, if it's, if it's not so easy, if there's a couple of them, what's the, 
your favorite match that you ever refereed? I would have to say, man, there's so many of them, Chris. You know, um, crowd-wise, you know, there was, there was, I mean, it just you're asking me for one match, the favorite one. Well, just give me a few that stand up for you, sure. It was like, be honest with you, Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that was in Denver, Colorado. That was an unbelievable match. Uh, Rock and Hogan, the crowd-wise in Toronto. I mean, Toronto was it, it was just a phenomenal crowd at the reaction. And um, yeah, there's there's quite a few of them. I just don't want to say that, you know one of them. Right. But there was you know you know there was Shawn Michaels versus Stone Cold in uh, in Boston Garden. I remember Brock Lesnar and Big Show with the ring collapsing. Oh, that was oh, that's right. You were in there for that. Yeah, that was phenomenal. Yeah. Talk about that bump because you you never really got a chance to rehearse that. You just had to go with it, right? Yeah, I mean Michael Hayes. A lot of everybody loved it, the way I sold that bump in the back, you know. So they, it was just it was something. It was just uh, actually I didn't know what to expect when the ring collapsed because they weren't they couldn't rehearse that, you know. Right. But uh, the crowd just came off their feet, and I just kind of looked around. It was just like stunned, like I'm thinking, "Holy crap! Is this what a ring looks like when it does collapse?" <laughs> <laughs> and two of the biggest dudes were over there selling, you know, Big Show and brought, you know, yeah. And I'm just sitting there, like, and the crowd's just going nuts, like, you know, the first time we ever pulled that stunt off. And um, yeah, and I mean. That was awesome. That was an awesome feeling. So it was all, it was really w- what I didn't do as a referee was just basically how I sold my face, had, you know, the reaction of me like selling it, collapsing. So that was really, wasn't too hard to do. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, you know, I mean, there's a lot of matches with Shane McMahon and Kurt Angle back in the day. God, they used to kill each other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and, you know, Shane had a lot to prove, and Kurt was like, "Yeah, I got a lot to prove too, and you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna earn this." You know? <laughs> well, dude, it's great to get a chance to catch up with you and talk to you. And, and like I said, uh, you should be very proud of 35 years uh, in the WWE. That's something that, that will probably never be matched again. And, and like you said, you still got a lot more to do. So, um, yeah, man. Like I said, much respect. Always one of my favorite referees and a, a great guy to hang with as well. Man, I appreciate it, Chris, and it was an honor to be on your show, man. I really appreciate everything. Good talking to you, man. Hope to see you soon, all right? Yeah, brother. Take care, man. Talk to you soon. You too, Chris. Okay, thank you.